Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to an episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. Do you follow the pack or challenge the status quo? Join Ted as he explores how to succeed by going against conventional wisdom. You'll hear leaders in technology and security tell stories about how they achieve their success by doing things differently. Knowledge is power. Now, more than ever. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Tech Done Different. I'm your host, Ted Harrington, and with me here today is our special guest, Jonathan Kite, the founder and CEO of Rent Ready. Jonathan, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having me, Ted. So I was really excited to have you come on the show for, for a number of reasons. But one is that I have observed, and as you and I were chatting about recently, this idea that you have looked at a very physical, tangible problem, right? That has to do with moving in and out of apartments, how walls get painted and all this stuff. And you've used software, you used technology to actually solve it. So thinking about sort of the intersection between the digital and the physical world, I think is, is really fascinating. So there's a few questions I have in here. So maybe we start with the idea of like how we can think about a problem. So you identified a real pain point that then has an extraordinary amount of complexity to it and we're able to sort of systematically address the problem. And I think a lot of people listening to the show probably have similar formats in their business where they've seen a problem, it's even more complex maybe than they realize and how to solve it, and they're looking for advice on, okay, how do I think about solving a complex problem? So maybe could you walk us through, in your view, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, sure, and I mean, I think it's helpful to understand like the specific problem we're solving too, which I'll kind of share as I, I walk through that story. I mean. I had the fortunate benefit of having founded uh, our company with two other co-founders, one of whom actually came from the multifamily industry, which is where our company is focused. And I think his experience of actually like living and breathing the problem that we're trying to solve was instrumental in really helping us understand exactly what we wanted to focus on as a company, which was really to take this really fragmented labor force in an industry that was not very technology dense. All technology in the multifamily industry is really focused on residents and resident experience. Very little was being applied to kind of the maintenance side of the multifamily industry, which is really where we're focused. And the problem statement for him was super simple, which was really, look, you know, apartment units, when a resident moves out of an apartment, need to be made ready for a new resident to move in. And, you know, for anybody who's you know, prepared a new home as they're moving in, and you realize like there's hundreds of things that you have to do to get that ready and livable. It's got to get painted. It's got to get cleaned. There are a lot of different maintenance tasks that you have to do. And apartment community managers were always responsible for figuring out how to solve this problem in a very offline or analog world where they were literally building relationships with individual contractors in the city that their apartment was based, manually calling them in what was ultimately a very repeatable sequence. So, you know, you always want to do painting first, you want to do maintenance second, you want to clean it last. And they were tracking all of this, usually on a whiteboard, or maybe if they were a little bit more advanced in an Excel spreadsheet. And if you think about like any, you know, relationship that you've built with a contractor in your personal life, a handyman, a plumber, and you think about the process that you went through to find them, vet them, 
schedule and coordinate the actual delivery of that service and then manage that invoice likely was not a 10 out of 10 experience for you. Then imagine having to do that with four or five different contractors and only being given seven days to get all that work done in a very compressed timeline becomes really, really complicated because it is highly sequenced and everything I just described is happy path, right? Like you call somebody, they're available day one that you need them and there are no problems. The the power's on, the water's on, you're able to get in there and do that work. And so to us, like that was just ripe for disruption, right? Like you have a sequenced problem that is essentially a, you know, workflow that is very repeatable, that happens very frequently. You know, why isn't technology being applied to this? Because it's something that's repeatable, that could be automated. And so he kind of had this brilliant idea of, hey, I'm having to deal with this every single day. This is a, you know, a big pain in the butt for me to have to do this. And it takes me four to six hours just to manually coordinate all these things all the time. And this is really around the same time that you kind of see the rise of a lot of you know, business to consumer marketplaces emerging like Uber and, you know, DoorDash and Handy and, you know, platforms like that. And kind of, you know, maybe we naively said, hey, like we are setting out to build the Uber for the apartment turnover process where, you know, a customer who's an apartment manager can press one button, say, hey, I have a two bedroom. Uh, You know, my resident moves out on the 10th and I need it ready by the 15th. Press one button and then have that go out and do everything that they were doing manually, phone, pen and paper before, all through you know, a very simple mobile application interface. Um, and so like when you start to deconstruct that problem, you really have to kind of think about each one of those stages and steps. And for us, we really started our, our company by focusing on understanding those problems in detail in each step of that stage before kind of fully automating the entirety of that process. You told me this uh, interesting insight. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about it, that in, in the early days of the company, you personally and your co-founders were the ones actually delivering the service, actually painting walls and stuff like that. And I think there's probably many people listening to this who have experienced something similar, right? Where the heavy lifting often has to be done in a bootstrap company by the people who started it. So how did you, maybe you could, well, tell any stories around that that might be interesting, but I think what's what's fascinating is the idea that you you learn something as a result, right? You, you This isn't theory to you of how the workflow goes because you've personally picked up a paintbrush. Can you talk to me about your experience with that and what people should take away from the idea of why sometimes rolling up your sleeves is going to deliver the best outcome for product development? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think people always say like product development should be led by customer feedback. And in our case, like we have two customers, the apartments we work with, but also the contractors who are performing the work. And so when we made the decision to kind of go out and do that work ourselves, we essentially were getting, you know, customer feedback from ourselves, which I think is a great way to kind of learn what needs to be built. I think, you know, so many founders, especially those that come from a technical background, will just start building right, right away. And for us, like, Going to an apartment to paint a wall as an example, you know, the first question you ask yourself as you go in there to actually perform a service or, or paint something yourself is a very simple one. Well, what color paint do I use? You know, so just like the, the most basic things kind of from that experience helped inform us to understand what needed to be built into the product. So that's a great example. Like, hey, we need to understand you know, what units exist at an apartment community, what is the very specific paint spec that would be required that I would need to then go and purchase, you know, from a paint store to then bring back to that apartment? What are the customer's expectations? Like, these are the things that are critical when we started to think about, hey, what is the interface that we want to build for a contractor to use? Because as you're actually going and doing that work, you start to understand 
you know, exactly what information is needed, how that experience needs to be simplified in a way that allows you to do work, but also get exactly the information you need. And, and I think also like not product focused, but doing that work for us also was a very humbling experience and built a lot of humility and sort of understanding the appreciation of that contracted workforce really being the lifeblood of the company that we are building. And, you know, I think in understanding where you focus your attention and product, you know, particularly for companies that are are operating like a marketplace where we are, where there are two sides to that. When you think about product and feature prioritization, you, you know, one customer always needs to be the lead, right? You can't prioritize two customers simultaneously, limited, you know, money, time, et cetera. And we got some great advice that, you know, ultimately you need to choose one customer as your primary focus. And for us, that ultimately became the service contractors who were performing work because if the experience that we built and gave to them was phenomenal, then they would ultimately deliver phenomenal service back to our true bread and butter customer, which are the apartment communities that we service as well. Yeah, that's that's an interesting insight. The idea that uh, that's probably true in any company, right? That there are multiple customers, some of whom might actually not pay to use the thing, but their influence is the is key to the business model or whatever. So, how does one, or I guess, how did you guys do it? Like, what would your advice be? How does one determine where to prioritize when there are competing? types of customers, or even within a single type of customer, there are individual customers that maybe compete where, you know, maybe one wants complexity and one wants simplicity. And how do you decide who, who wins? For us, I think, you know, voice of the customer is critical. And like, we are in a very good practice of doing kind of annualized outreach to both sides of our marketplace, the contractor side, the customer side. And ultimately, I think, what you start to realize in that data are there there are patterns, right? Where you start to see intersection of, okay, you know, a contractor wants X. And if we give a contractor X, it will lead to outcome Y for a customer. And outcome Y is the number one thing that customers are ultimately looking for. And so for us, like that data collection process of making sure we're constantly asking, what do we need to improve upon on both sides, I think is what ultimately drives that. But I think our North Star has ultimately always been like, regardless of who pays us, we need to focus on what is the number one thing that our paying customers are looking for? And what is the number one thing that drives that outcome? And so in our case, the equation is fairly simple. Like an apartment community is looking for high quality convenience in terms of pressing that easy button and getting contractors to come in and perform work. Well, then the question becomes, well, what, what leads to that, right? How do you drive quality? How do you then drive convenience and reliability to that? And the answer to that, again, because we're a marketplace, you've kind of got this chicken egg scenario, right? You can't sell a customer without a service contractor on your marketplace to serve that customer. So that means that ultimately we need to really be focused on the experience that we provide our contractors to make this such a great place to work that ultimately that drives that outcome that customers are looking for, which is quality. So that's why we've kind of chosen to focus there predominantly, especially in the early days. So how does someone building a company balance this? On one hand, you've got the condition that you described, which is the voice of the customer should be what drives product development. And on the other hand, you've got the vision or mission that you as a founder or your team of founders set out 
to go achieve, right? We're going to, you, you've described it as the, you know, the Uber of rent turnover. You said it prettier than that, but like you guys had a vision and what, a, what happens when the voice of the customer pushes you maybe in a different direction? How does one balance or rectify that disconnect? Yeah. And I, it's interesting, like that founding vision of Uber for apartment turnovers, I think was fundamentally flawed, right? That's how we kind of started. And maybe that was a bit naive, like in trying to replicate what they had done, because we made it an assumption that, you know, receiving these services was essentially a commodity, right? Just like Uber, you, you order an Uber and you don't really know the driver that's going to show up and nor does it really matter, right? As long as they're rated well, presumably like everybody can deliver that service to you, you know, within a threshold of acceptability. And we kind of assumed that same logic would apply to what we were doing with connecting service providers with apartments. And that was just completely wrong, which was, I think, like a really eye-opening experience early days where we started to realize based on customer feedback that it actually isn't, you know, the quality of the person who shows up that's necessarily the preeminent driving factor in satisfaction. It's maybe more so the consistency of the person that shows up. Because one of the interesting things about our industry is it is a recurring model, right? So as an example, in the industry, 50 plus percent of units at an apartment community will turn over on an annual basis. So a 200 unit community will actually facilitate 100 unit turns on an annual basis. They don't all happen at once. They happen every single month. And so just sending a randomized resource and just kind of trying to do optimization on like schedule and load balancing in the platform to just send whoever to in order to make sure that we fulfill that request. It's kind of our initial assumption of how we would man manage supply and demand mechanics in our marketplace. But that was wrong because if you are turning over 100 units every time, you don't want to see a hundred different painters show up to your apartment community because you kind of want to build a relationship where that individual understands what your expectations are. And so for us, we had to like very quickly course correct to understand that not only is this a load balancing mechanism that we're building in, it's also a quality feedback loop that ultimately drives kind of permanent relationship pairings between service contractors and the customer, the apartment community as well. And that was really, really valuable feedback where we were just proven flat out wrong in our thesis, but we had to quickly adapt to that. Unfortunately, that you know makes what we are building infinitely more complicated uh, in terms of what we're trying to achieve. But I think that's a, a great learning lesson in terms of that. So how does someone who goes through a pivot like that think about the vision now moving forward? So is, is vision something that changes over time? Or, I mean, we're all like, everyone's exposed to someone like Elon Musk, right? And Elon Musk, love him or hate him, he does a really good job of articulating a mission that does not bend. And that mission is, you know, we need a backup plan for Earth, which is we need to colonize Mars. And then you work backwards from that to why he's building electric cars. And, and it's, it's a clear vision. And once he's articulated and it's unwavering, like no changes in the in the marketplace, in the world, political, nothing is changing that vision, yet it happens all the time. The companies have to adapt and pivot, just as you're saying. So does that mean that should vision be adaptable? Should vision change? Or does the way we execute the vision change? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I mean, for me, the vision has changed, or at least is an adaptation of what that original vision was. So I mean, you can kind of take some creative liberties and say, like, maybe initially it was the Uber for apartment turns, but like, what does Uber mean in terms of personal transportation, right? 
it's ultimately frictionless access to transportation. And so we've kind of morphed like what that vision is over time in terms of like, okay, it's no longer that. Now our goal is to provide a frictionless turnover or a frictionless make ready experience for customers. And look, I think that's fine. Like the market changes, dynamics change, industries change. And I think, you know, that ability to constantly be aware of and be prepared for change is critical in starting a company, but growing and maintaining a company. It's probably the number one attribute that I test for when I interview people is everybody will tell you they're okay with change, but probably only 25% of people are truly okay with massive change on an annual or biannual basis. That's very interesting. So how do you how do you test for that? I am going to take notes on this. How do you test for someone's ability to deal with change? Yeah, I well personally like so I came from Microsoft before I helped start our company and like they do tons of situational interviewing, right? And so I've adopted a lot of that where I will usually put out whatever the problem du jour is that we're trying to solve here at Rent Ready. So basically not an unsolvable problem, but a problem that has not been solved that, you know, all the top minds at our company are thinking about and working at on. And I'll ask a candidate to solve that problem for me. And then I'll let them get to a solution and I'll say, I agree. And I'll give that feedback. And then I'll throw a brand new wrinkle into it, which is like the exact opposite approach that we maybe have already taken that we know has failed. And then I'll get them to agree with that. And then I'll let them know, oh, well, we've done that, but it's failed. And so I just like constantly try to get them to iterate through problem solving very rapidly to a point where they either, you know, display discomfort which means they probably are not okay with rapid change or they get really, really into it and they start asking me more questions than I'm asking them, which to me is a signal that that's going to be a great candidate. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds pretty, uh, pretty interesting. I mean, I, I'm a big believer for sure in, in an interview asking questions about the problem you're trying to solve right now, because who knows, maybe you get the solution. It's that, that's definitely happened in interviews. Like, wait, that's a good idea. Someone write that. Down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Hold on a minute. Keep going. Yeah. 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 You might get the job. You might not, but you helped us to solve this problem. But that's a cool idea. The, in addition to, I hadn't thought about the second part that you just introduced, which was not just give them a situation that you're actively dealing with, but then throw them something you already know the outcome of, especially maybe something that failed and see how they deal with adapting on the fly to that that scenario so that's that's a pretty cool idea i was also just adapting to failure in general i like i think that's a super hard lesson that like many people don't get which is like you're going to fail nine out of ten times and you can try the same thing ten times in a row fail nine times and on the tenth time it's a home run so don't give up yeah well, hey, I, I need to hear that for sure. I mean, you think about just building a company, you feel it too, right? It's like, why does it feel like most stuff doesn't work? And then, but then the ones that do work, you're like, oh, I'm obviously this is because I did it right. That you know, it's not because of the iterative fail process, but truly, it is that iterative failing process that leads us forward. Absolutely. I, you know, I think for us, like our greatest learning lesson around that and a similar pivot. So, you know, historically, like in what we are building, we sought to seed the supply side of our marketplace, like in a very, I would say brick and mortar fashion. Like we just build it brick by brick, right? So we'd go acquire one customer, we would go out and procure or recruit one individual provider in any skill set, one painter, one cleaner, one carpet cleaner, super laborious process, took a very, very long time. And most of these were kind of individual 1099s. During the pandemic, kind of early 2020, like people just stopped moving, right? There was, you know, that huge psychological fallout of the fear of the unknown. So our industry essentially bottomed out overnight 
And I think we saw probably 90 plus percent drops in revenue in one month going from March into April. And so that's obviously a good cause for panic. And we certainly did panic and kind of quickly pivoted to realizing, okay, like, well, what are other services that we can sell into the same customer base that we have where we can quickly adapt or modify our technology to really facilitate? And one of the biggest things that we noticed was happening in the news was there was all of this emphasis and focus being put on kind of sanitization efforts and common places, malls, airports, grocery stores, but nobody was doing that in multifamily. And so we started to build relationships with national providers that would go in and do kind of electrostatic spraying sanitization and got them to join our platform and marketplace and then sold that back to customers. And that just like kind of quickly exploded for you know, a three, four month period, really saved our business, but came with this like huge learning lesson where in the past, again, we were building contractor networks brick by brick. We had always had this thought process that, hey, wouldn't it be easier to just partner with pre-existing large painting companies or pre-existing large cleaning companies to help use our technology to connect them to customers? We had tried that again and again and again and could not get it to work. But then it clicked when we did that with these sanitization providers. Like We just kind of uncracked the code there, um, figured out how to do that. That was a huge success. And then we said, all right, let's start doing this for real in our core business with our core offering as you know things started to rebound. And again, that was probably the 10th time we tried it, failed the first nine times, 10th time it worked. And now we're starting to apply that to our normal business model with great success. And it solves that same problem that we're trying to solve, which is you know removing the friction from both sides of the marketplace and using technology to facilitate the coordination and workflow management of getting a unit ready. That's so cool, man. Well, as our time is uh, coming to a close here, is there anything that you wanted to leave our audience with that we haven't talked about or that I should have asked you about? Yeah, I mean, I think we've talked about, at least for me, like the key lessons of you know iteration, understanding failure, adaptability of vision, I think also key. You know, I, a lot of people always ask like, what is, you know, your biggest piece of advice to somebody, you know, going out and founding a company or starting a company? And for me, it's always do it with another co-founder. Don't, don't do it alone. I think having other people around you to kind of share the stress and burden of growing a company is key to your survival. It keeps you out of the pitfalls of groupthink and just you know, being very single-minded, diversity of ideas is great, but also just the diversity of being able to share the responsibility across co-founders is, is key. And, you know, we, we could not have done what we've done here without a really strong co-founding team. And I think that's the, the best advice I could give anyone. I like that. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the show. I definitely learned a lot from you today, and I, I think our audience will too. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Ted. For everybody else, if you want to learn more about what Jonathan's up to or check out other episodes, just head to tedharrington.com backslash podcast, and we'll catch you next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.